industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. I'd like to now introduce Dr. Hannah Spungen, who is a graduate of the UCLA Ronald Reagan Olive View Emergency Medicine Residency and is a currently a senior toxicology fellow at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix. Well, thank you so much for having me. Today we'll be talking about Bicycle Day and Albert Hoffman and his discovery of LSD. So first, I would like to make it clear that this lecture is about the Bicycle Day that falls on April 19th. It's not to be confused with the World Bicycle Day, which the UN General Assembly has recognized as June 3rd, so I apologize for any cycling aficionados out there. The first time I heard about Bicycle Day was sometime during my sophomore year of college in upstate New York. Uh, a group of friends and I were sitting around somebody's dorm discussing how 420 became the national stoner holiday when my friend Joe solemnly cut in. He's like, dude, forget 420. The real holiday is on 419, Bicycle Day. And Joe proceeded to enlighten us. I don't remember the exact version of the story he told, but most circulating versions of the popular legend go something like this. On April 19th, 1943, a Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffman gets exposed to lysergic acid diethylamide, a compound he's been working on in his lab. While he's riding his bicycle home, the LSD starts to kick in, and he experiences the world's first acid trip. And from that trip, a social movement is born. By and large, this version of events isn't all that far off from the truth, with a few notable exceptions, but there's a lot more to the story. My objective today is to convince you that the bicycle trip isn't even the most interesting part. Some of the things we'll talk about today include snail juice, the creepiest looking fungus I know, what an analeptic is and why Hitler's doctor always had a syringe full at the ready, and why milk isn't always the answer. With that, let's begin. So today we take for granted the existence of psychedelic drugs that produce non-ordinary states of consciousness. Dropping acid or having a bad trip are phrases that are so ingrained in pop culture, even the most straight-edge people mostly know what they mean. But in the early 20th century, there was not much mainstream cultural awareness about this kind of departure from a normal state of being. Hallucinogenic experiences were largely confined to the realm of the religious or occult, as Dr. Weiss was just discussing. Outsiders rarely sought involvement in these ceremonial intoxication rituals, and the use of substances like mescaline or ayahuasca wasn't widely recognized outside of anthropology circles. Other plants, however, were gaining interest with the medical community for their pharmaceutical properties. Many researchers at the time were trying to isolate specific components of plants to identify targets for drug development. Digitalis, the active component of the foxglove flower, was a prime example. Although it had, had been used medicinally to treat various heart failure-related conditions for centuries, no one knew its exact structure, how to reliably synthesize it. Doing so would allow for more precise standardized dosing and lucrative profits for the company that figured out how to do it. This was the historical context during which a bright young chemist named Albert Hoffman had just completed his chemistry studies at the University of Zurich. His thesis was about figuring out the structure of chitin, which is the molecule that gives exoskeletons and fungal cell walls their rigid structure. He did this by studying the gastric juice of vineyard snails, and he earned his doctorate degree with distinction. After completing his snail thesis, Hoffman took a job with the Basel-based pharmaceutical company Sandoz in its chemical research lab. Hoffman's background purifying and figuring out the structure of an unknown compound was exactly what Sandoz wanted him to do for medicinal plant matter. And thus Hoffman got what, in my opinion, was a promotion from snails to squill. 
Sea squill or Dremia maritima is a plant that contains members of the same family of cardioactive glycosides that are found in foxglove or digitalis. Hoffman's job was to isolate a more stable version of these molecules that could theoretically be turned into pharmaceuticals, kind of like how digitalis was turned into digoxin, a once widely prescribed drug for heart failure. In 1935, after figuring out the structure of the squill glycosides, he decided it was time for a change. Specifically, Hoffman was interested in working with a group of substances called ergot alkaloids. It's worth taking a minute to discuss ergot, which could be a lecture of its own, and was the topic of Trevor Serbini's excellent talk about the relationship between ergot and the Salem witch trials on Toxic History episode number 21. Ergot is the common name for a fungal disease that affects wheat, rye, and other grain crops. Infected grains get these disturbing looking purple brown growths that look like something straight off the set of The Last of Us. It's caused by the fungal genus Claviceps purpurea, and it has caused multiple outbreaks of mass poisoning throughout history. Surprisingly, though, it has also been used as a medicine since at least the 1500s to help augment labor and control bleeding after childbirth. Don't ask me how they first figured that out. Hoffman's mentor, Stoll, had done some work in the 1910s with ergot alkaloids, and Hoffman felt like it was worth giving them another look. Some prominent American scientists had just isolated one of the backbone structures of ergot, which they were calling lysergic acid. Hoffman envisioned building on that backbone to make more potent or efficacious pharmaceuticals. Stoll was less than enthusiastic about the idea of working with ergot again. Quote, I must warn you of the difficulties you face in working with the ergot alkaloids. These are exceedingly sensitive, easily decomposed substances, less stable than any of the compounds you have investigated in the cardiac glycoside field but you are welcome to try, unquote. And try Hoffman did. He set out trying to synthesize a series of lysergic acid derivatives for animal testing. Many ergot derivatives had already been tried as drugs to control postpartum bleeding, but Hoffman had his sights set on a slightly different use. His theory, uh, for those of you who are watching here, his theory was that adding this specific ethyl, these, this diethyl functional group, to the lysergic acid backbone would create a drug like coramine. Coramine was the brand name of nicethamide, which was a drug being used at the time as an analeptic. Analeptic isn't a term you hear often in medicine anymore for a number of reasons, mainly because it's imprecise. It describes a wide array of drugs that through some mechanism or another stimulate breathing and reverse coma. This was from a time when we knew just enough to know how to sedate people with drugs like barbiturates, but we weren't great at waking them back up again. Coramine was the kind of thing you might find in use long before we had the standard things we use for comatose tox patients today, like Narcan and just intubating them. A historical side note, Adolf Hitler's personal physician was known to carry coramine around and used it anytime the Fuhrer got a little bit too deeply sedated on barbiturates to wake him up. It turns out this was a fairly regular occurrence because this physician, Dr. Theodore Morell, used barbiturates anytime he overdid it on the IV cocaine and methamphetamine injections he was also administering to Hitler. In fact, Morell regularly injected the Fuhrer with an absolutely wacky smorgasbord of substances, including testosterone, sugar, stimulants, and sedatives as the time of day required. I suspect the only reason Morell didn't kill Hitler outright was because there were unfortunately often other more competent doctors around. Anyway, this functional group attracted Hoffman's attention, so he synthesized the diethylamide version of lysergic acid. It was known in his shorthand as LSD-25 because it was the 25th lysergic acid derivative he produced as a drug candidate. 
Hoffman first synthesized LSD-25 in 1938, and as was the drug development protocol, they first tested it on animals. So technically, the first LSD trip was experienced by a lab rabbit in 1938. And I have no way of proving it, but animal experimentation being what it was at the time, I suspect it was a terrifying experience. The animal researchers charged with documenting the effect of LSD-25 on rabbits merely noted that the animals became restless, but it, quote, aroused no special interests in our pharmacologists and physicians. Testing was therefore discontinued, unquote. After the lackluster rabbit trials in 1938, nothing more was heard of LSD-25 for the next five years. Hoffman busied himself by synthesizing a drug called hydrogen, an ergot derivative that was used for dementia treatment. It was thought to dilate cerebral blood vessels, and it was actually the 11th most widely prescribed drug at, in the world at one time in the 80s, but its use fell off when people realized it didn't really work. This brings us to the biggest mystery of the story. About five years after abandoning LSD as a potential pharmaceutical, Hoffman decided to make it again. Why? No one really knows. Returning to substances that had already been tested and discarded as drug candidates was almost unheard of. All Hoffman had to say about it was that he had a, quote, peculiar presentiment. So it seems like the discovery of LSD as a hallucinogen and the psychedelic social movement at birth all came down to a hunch. Kind of makes you wonder what other substances have been written off in the annals of pharmaceutical history. So we return to the spring of 1943, shortly after Hoffman's peculiar presentiment led him to try working with LSD-25 again. He got to work synthesizing a new batch, and at the final step of the synthesis, he started to feel weird. Quote, last Friday, April 16th, 1943, I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home, being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into a not unpleasant intoxicated-like condition characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state with eyes closed, I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. After some two hours, this condition faded away. It is this account and not the story of his legendary bicycle ride the following Monday that describes the first time a human experienced the effects of LSD. Before we get to Bicycle Day, and we're almost there, I promise, Hoffman's first mini-trip begs the question, how did he absorb it? This question has actually been discussed in psychedelic pharmacology circles because the idea that he absorbed it through intact skin is not really feasible. All accounts of Hoffman's work habits describe him as meticulously neat. Moreover, there are many accounts from chemists who have synthesized LSD that refute the idea that it's easy to accidentally absorb some through intact skin. Dr. David Nichols, a chemistry and pharmacology professor at Purdue University, addressed this question during a 2003 lecture at a psychedelic pharmacology conference. Quote, I've made LSD in my lab on many occasions for research purposes, possibly in not so meticulous a manner as Albert Hoffman. Nothing ever happened. I had several graduate students who made LSDs an intermediate for projects. No accidental ingestion of LSD ever occurred. A technician in my lab makes it routinely because we use it as a drug to train our rats. He's learned by experience that he never gets high. Nothing ever happens, unquote. Tragically, Nichols does not describe what he was training the rats to do on LSD, but he does go on to relate the story of a colleague who painted a solution of LSD in DMSO, which is a solvent that enhances dermal drug absorption onto his skin and still experienced no effects. 
So overall, I think it's unlikely that Hoffman's first exposure came from an accidental spill. The LSD solution probably had to come into contact with mucous membranes or a break in his skin to get absorbed. My guess is that he may have rubbed his eye or touched something he ate with contaminated hands, but at the end of the day, this is all pure conjecture and no one really knows. Whatever the mechanism of his accidental exposure, Hoffman spent the weekend after that Friday thinking about his experience. He concluded that the substance must be active at an extremely low dose to cause such profound effects with presumably minimal exposure. So he decided to test his theory with a self-experiment. He was aiming for the minimum dose that would cause any noticeable effect, and he settled on 250 micrograms. Ironically, 77 years later, some researchers did a dose-finding study at the University of Basel, and the maximum dose they wanted to test on healthy humans was 200 micrograms, which is shown here, in, for those of you that can see, in the blue bars on this graph. They showed that this dose caused profound effects in terms of oceanic boundlessness, as you can see here on the y-axis. Before I found the study, I did not even know that oceanic boundlessness was a scale that could get reported in a legitimate scientific journal. And, and just to clarify for the eagle-eyed viewers, the black bar here denoted as 200 micrograms plus K represents a group that got both LSD and ketanserin simultaneously. Ketanserin is a serotonin receptor antagonist. Since LSD works by activating the type 2A serotonin receptors, co-administering it with a serotonin antagonist canceled out the effect. So all this is to say that Hoffman had no idea of knowing it at the time, but 250 micrograms is actually not a low dose. The resulting experience, now commemorated every April 19th as Bicycle Day, is described in Hoffman's contemporaneous notes as follows. As you will see, he wisely waited until the end of his workday to conduct the self-experiment. Quote, for 1943, at 4.20 in the afternoon, 0.5 cc's of half promil aqueous solution of diethylamine tartrate orally, taken diluted with about 10 cc's of water, tasteless. 1700, beginning of dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. Supplement of 421, home by bicycle, from 1800 to about 2000, most severe crisis. See special report. His notes were short because he started to have difficulty writing. Fortunately, an assistant in his office was available to escort him home by bicycle. Hoffman later described the ride home. Quote, everything in my field of vision wavered and was distorted as if seen in a curved mirror. I also had the sensation of being unable to move from the spot, unquote. He didn't have much more to say about the four kilometer journey from the Sandoz lab to his home in Basel, but it's clear that when he got home, he was in pretty bad shape. He described his surroundings as having taken on a very sinister quality. At first, he thought he had gone permanently insane. A bit later, he concluded he was dying, and he started lamenting the hardships in store for the young family he was to leave behind. In desperation, he decided to try drinking milk as a nonspecific detoxicant, and in an act not dissimilar to modern fraternity hazing rituals, he chugged about two liters of milk over the course of the evening. A physician summoned to attend to Hoffman noted that he had dilated pupils, but otherwise physically seemed completely fine. The doctor had Hoffman lie in bed, at which point Hoffman finally realized he wasn't dying. And so reassured by this physician, he closed his eyes and even briefly began to enjoy the experience. He described swirling and playful kaleidoscopic images and felt like he could see the sounds of the ambient city noises outside his window. Eventually he fell asleep, and when he woke the next day, to his astonishment, he felt fine. 
Almost immediately after this experience, Hoffman realized that the substance had great potential for medicinal use, though initially his thoughts were more along the lines of a medical model of psychosis as opposed to a therapeutic tool. He told his boss Stoll about his self-experiment, and Stoll's immediate reaction was that Hoffman must have miscalculated the dose because no substances at the time had known psychoactivity at fraction of a milligram doses. The director of the Sandoz Pharmacology Department agrees, agreed with Stoll's appraisal until both he and Stoll conducted their own self-experiments at even lower doses and concluded that Hoffman was right. Thus began a new area of pharmacologic research into LSD. The rest, as they say, is history. LSD caught on quickly in the world of psychiatry. Trials were undertaken to study the use of LSD in the reliving of repressed memories, and Sandoz's package insert even had a section that recommended that psychiatrists use it themselves to experience the world of model psychosis that they would be subjecting their patients to. Weirdly, it was also piloted on schizophrenic patients, a decision that is now widely recognized as a bad idea. Most of the non-schizophrenic experimental subjects who are given LSD exhibited much more euphoric reactions than Hoffman initially had. Early proponents of the use of LSD in psychotherapy tried to clearly maintain that it was supposed to be an adjunct to psychoanalysis and not a cure in and of itself. Some more fringe psychoanalysts even became adamant that LSD was a tool for reliving childbirth. Either way, LSD enjoyed about a decade of therapeutic experimentation before it caught on as a drug of abuse. Hoffman later came to think of LSD as his problem child, as reports of lay people experimenting with LSD reached frenzied levels in the media. Sandoz had to cease manufacturing LSD for research due to the abundance of negative PR it was attracting, even though LSD is remarkably safe from a therapeutic index perspective. Even as Hoffman reflected on his life's work decades later, his attitude towards his own creation was mixed, and he clearly struggled with the fact that his legacy of developing therapeutic drugs became so intertwined with illicit drug use in the counterculture community. Nevertheless, he continued to take LSD throughout his life. His last trip was at the age of 97, and he passed away in 2008 at the age of 102. I think he would probably take great encouragement from the renewed interest being enjoyed by multiple psychoactive substances, including LSD, as therapeutic tools today. And with that, here are my references, and thank you so much for having me here today.